Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, Southbridge Fellowship. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks so much for letting us come into your home, inviting us into your living rooms, into your kitchen right now. And I know for years we've been saying to you, come to the campus. Here's what we're doing. There's this service. There'll be this gathering. And, and now you're inviting us into your home. And I know some of you have invited people into your home to watch as we have this service together. And so if you're a guest in somebody's home today, maybe they made you breakfast. If not, there's an idea for next week. Thanks so much for joining us. And I think what I'm about to say is almost needless to say, but I'm going to say it anyways. Our world is a mess right now. You look out there and you see not only a global pandemic and people arguing about what's happening with that and politicizing it and all the things that are taking place in that, but you see the murder of a man unjustly murdered on, on camera, George Floyd. And our hearts go out, the Floyd family. But then from that, we see also just the exposure of a systemic race problem in our, in our country. Not just in our country, in our, in our community, in our churches. And so we see protests, some peaceful protests, some riots, and some looting, and our world's a mess. And it's easy with all the chaos and all the madness that's happening to miss there's other things that have actually happened in the world. Like, did you see last week that we actually took, for the first time in almost a decade, two American astronauts from American soil and sent them into space. And as I was thinking about that, it reminded me of a movie that was popular back in the mid-90s. It was starring Tom Hanks. And then they were talking about a, a trip, and it was based on a true story from the Apollo 13 when they were headed to the moon back in the 70s. And, and, and what happens in that movie is that there's an explosion in the spacecraft and things go sideways. There's a crisis. And there's a line in that movie that's become part of our culture, not just attributed to that movie. And if you know the line, you might look at somebody in the in the room with you right now and say it. Just, to, just show them. Show them you know the line. It's Houston, talking back to Control Center, Houston, we have a problem. Did you know that's not the actual quote by the real astronaut that was on the Apollo 13? When they were making the movie, they thought that was better for suspense. They cut down some words, but the actual quote goes more like this. Okay, Houston, we have had a problem. And I was thinking about that in light of what's happening in our world. And you think about the things that are taking place that we see out there right now. We have a problem. But our control center is not Houston. It's in heaven. It's our heavenly Father. Father, we have a problem. But we've had a problem. I did an illustration in a sermon about two months ago. Several of you have talked to me about it since. Where I just took a lime and I had a squeezer for the lime and I I started to press it and I started to talk about what was happening with this virus and people being at home and the pressures and the tensions and the stressors and the things that were happening. And I said, that stuff's always been there. It's just coming to the surface as the pressure increases. I think we're seeing that right now. Because listen, church, do you think racism is a, is a problem over these last two months or you think the last couple of years or decades? This is centuries in our country and in our churches. It's still a problem that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Father, we have a problem, but we've had a problem. We've had a problem where there's been a portion of our population that the, the bank of justice has been bankrupt for them from our, the entire history of our nation. We have, a, we have a problem, but we've had a problem. We have a problem when there's people in the church that say they love God, who they can't see, but they don't love their brother, who they can see. The Bible says that we're liars if we say that's true. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and then like it, love your neighbor. And if we have a religion that makes us okay with violating that, Father, we have a problem. But we've had a problem. We've got a lot of problems when you look in our country. 
we're more divided than we've ever been in my lifetime. I know we had the Civil War. It's probably not more than ever throughout history. But it's easier now to excuse someone, ignore someone because of the way they voted or an opinion they have on politics than it is to engage them in conversation. Father, we have a problem. But we've had these problems. And if you've been at home watching the news or even just thinking about this right now in this moment, the question has to be, what do we do? And I believe that our passage of Scripture today answers that question. If you've got a copy of the Bible, will you join me in the book of 2 Chronicles? It's in the Old Testament. If you've got to look at the table of contents, that's great. But in 2 Chronicles, and we'll put the verses on the screen here in a moment. But 2 Chronicles, obviously, 1 and 2 Chronicles were one book together originally in the Old Testament. But there's 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. And what's happening in the book of Chronicles, I believe it's a book of revival. Because what we see even in the book of 2 Chronicles are five different revivals. And what you oftentimes see in revivals, like the first great awakening in America, is that crisis precedes the revival because it gets people's attention. Jonathan Edwards talks about in the first great awakening how, how there was a time when two young people unexpectedly died and it got a bunch of people thinking about eternity. Well, let me ask you this. If a whole bunch of people are watching death tolls on the news every day and riots and, and, and the chaos that's happened, do you think they start thinking about eternity? I think, I believe that we're at a point in time in history right now where we are ripe for people looking at our world and realizing this, this is not how it's supposed to be, that there's another world, another kingdom, we're ripe for revival. In Second Chronicles, what's happening here is it's the story, it's really to tell the story about how God keeps his promises, whether a king's faithful or not. And God promised that Jesus was going to come through the line of David. And David was a king. First there was Saul. And see, ultimately the book of Chronicles, the context is the book of Judges. Do you know what happens in the book of Judges? God says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's one of the greatest societal sins, not a biblical sin, but societal sins right now is to tell someone that what they're doing or thinking is wrong because everyone can justify everything they're doing because everyone does what's right in their own eyes. We all have our own truth, and we even make up our own religion, and we do our own thing. And so if you confront someone that they're wrong, say, that's what you think, that's your interpretation, that's your thought, but we all do what's right in our own eyes. And then what happens in, is that the people, they ask for Saul, and God gives them Saul as a king because he's tall and he's handsome, and he fails. And then David becomes king. And then David wants to build a temple to God. But God says, no, 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 not you. I'm going to have your son do it, Solomon. And Solomon builds the temple. And in 2 Chronicles, where we're going to be is 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And what's happened in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 is the temple's been built. It's been dedicated. Solomon's prayed about it. And God's answering his prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 11. If you've got a Bible, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11 says this, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord, and the king's house, that's his own house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer. If you get the whole context of this, you read chapter 6, what you see is that the things that are being said in chapter 7 are an exact answer to the prayer that Solomon's prayed back in chapter 6. And have chosen this place, talking about the temple that's been dedicated, for myself as a house of sacrifice. And then get this, you've got to get verse 13 to understand verse 14. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if, it's a conditional promise, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, that's one of the conditions, and pray, condition, and seek my face, condition, and turn from their wicked ways, condition, then, here's the promise, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place, the temple. 
Now here, before we unpack this, I've got to say something. I know that not everyone is in America that's listening to this, but most of you are in America, and as Americans, we've hijacked this verse. You're probably familiar with it. You might not know any verse in First or Second Chronicles, but you probably have heard Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, because it's been grabbed, sometimes by well-meaning people, for a prayer rally, to get God's people praying again, sometimes for not well-meaning people, for a political rally, because there's a thought or talk about how we're going to restore some moral code of America or get get economy back on track or some kind of healing that needs to take place in America. And so we grab this verse. Let me tell you something about this verse. This is not to us. This verse was not written to America. But it is for us as followers of Jesus Christ. It's not to us, but it is for, it's to a specific people, Israel, at a specific time when they're building the temple, dedicating the temple in history. And it's to a people that have a land. Israel as a nation had a land. As followers of Jesus Christ, and I'm just talking, really today's message is not to everybody, it's just to you if you're a true part of God's true church and you're really a follower of Christ. The year is people. You've been called, you've called upon the name of Jesus Christ for salvation, and now you're called by his name. You've been adopted into his family, and you become part of the church. But here's the reality: the church is not the nation of America. The church is God's people. And when you read the Bible, that's of every tribe, every nation, every tongue. The last time I checked, I was reading the Bible, what heaven's going to be like, come from every nation. So it's not a promise to us as a nation. And God goes out of his way in verse 14 and says, my people, called by my name. In the New Testament, that applies to us because we bear his name. And we are a temple. See, the temple was destroyed because of the disobedience of Israel. It no longer exists. But we are his temple now. Not only a temple of the Holy Spirit indwelling us as followers of Jesus, but, but if you look at Peter, what it says in, in, in 1 Peter, it says this. In, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 and verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Listen, we are sojourners in this land. Our citizenship as followers of Jesus is not this place. We don't have any land, so our our land can't be healed. Our land can't be restored. This is not to us, but why do I say it's for us? Well, it's for us for multiple reasons. One, because it's in the Scriptures. And Paul tells us in in Timothy, when he's speaking to Timothy, he says all Scripture. He's talking about the Old Testament. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for instruction and correction and teaching and rebuking and and we also know when we read the New Testament in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, Paul's just told stories about how Israel disobeyed. And he says their disobedience should serve as, serve as an example to us as New Testament believers, as a warning to us when God's disciplining us, which is exactly what's happening in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And so this is a passage, it's to us, or it's not to us, but it's for us. And not only is it for us because of what the New Testament says about it, but also all these principles are repeated in the New Testament. And so it can't be hijacked and used for political advantage because it's not an American verse, but it is to God's people. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you wear his name, he's speaking to us and he's giving us instructions, not how to make everything the way that we want it to be restored to in our country, but how to respond as a follower when the world around you is a mess. And so what we see in this passage of Scripture is a problem, a solution, and an application. And that's our outline today. Problem a solution, and an application. And the problem, the problem's huge because the problem is a God-sized problem. Where do you get that? Well, that's why you've got to read verse 13 to understand verse 14. 
Look, look at what God said in verse 13. When, not if, when. When I, who does it? God's the one who actually shut up the heavens, caused a drought so that there's no rain. Or command the locust. He's the one who sent the plague to devour the land. Or send pestilence among my people. I bet you don't usually hear that at the political rallies. But that's the key to understanding this passage is what happens in verse 13. Is that God, when, when he does this, that's a problem. Like, think about this. We, we read some of this and I'm like, locust, that's crazy Bible stuff. No droughts. Okay, that's not as big of a deal. We've got water. We've got wells. We've got systems for all the dams that we've built. Try and imagine being in an agricultural society, because remember, this isn't to us. This was to Israel at a specific time in history. And you've worked all year for your crops to grow, and then locusts come through? It's devastating. Or, or, or you're praying for the, the crops to be good, and there's no rain, there's a drought. This, is, this stuff is a problem, but it's not the problem. Let me say something. Southbridge, specifically. We have a problem of racism, not just in our community, not just in our country, but in our churches. If you're naive enough to think this isn't in our churches, it's in our churches. It's, in, it's not just in our pews. It's in the pulpits. It's not just in patrol cars. It's in the pews. Like, we've got a problem that's in the church, and it divides the church, and it's a problem in the church. And for those of you who want to dismiss that, I want to give you a picture of racism to think about. Regardless of what your thoughts are politically about the protests and the riots and things, there was a peaceful protest that was taking place in Brooklyn this week. I was reading an article about this family, the Simmons, that were out there. American family, father, wife, three kids, and they were peacefully protesting. Black family. And then the police came at them with tear gas or some chemical. They didn't know what it was, and they ran off, and they were interviewing the mom, and she said, that's what it feels like to be black in America. Because everything can seem safe. Everything can seem fine. And then all of a sudden, things fall apart, and you feel like you're being attacked. And what happened was they walked another mile down the road in front of the Barclays Center, and then their son, and here's the picture I want you to have. Their son, an 11-year-old boy, his name's Frederick, Frederick Simmons, is holding up a sign that says, am I next? The fact that he has to ask that question is, Father, we have a problem, but we've had a problem. But the problem, racism's a symptom of the problem. Locusts weren't the problem. It was a symptom of the problem. The drought wasn't the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. I had a friend, a black friend of mine, who posted on social media this week, and he said, racism's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. The problem that's happening here in Second Chronicles, it's not a drought problem, it's not a famine problem, it's not a locust problem. In fact, that's why you've got to understand the context to really understand this passage, is that what happens here is that God's answering the prayer that Solomon's been praying. He prayed it in chapter 6. And so if you go back to chapter 6, in verse 26, Solomon showed us what the problem is. When he's praying to God, he says, when heaven is shut up, so there's no rain, and there's no rain because, and underline that word, because they have sinned against you. And then he goes on, and what you see is what he prays here is the very thing that, that God's answering in this passage. If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear from heaven and forgive their sin. And it goes on, and it's all the answers that were given in chapter 7. But the problem was a sin problem. And that's the problem we have. And I'm not talking about the culture See, a lot of times as Christians, we've got this tendency to look like we're sitting up in our ivory tower and if the schools just had prayer and if the courts just had the Ten Commandments and if we could just moralize society. I'm talking about a church problem, a sin problem that we have in the church. And Southbridge specifically, even for us. I've been saying this since we started this church. We are over church and under Jesus. We're over church and under Jesus. You say, well, I believe in Jesus. I know Je 
I think I've been thinking about lately just how much we're like the Israelites when they went through the Exodus and Exodus chapter 14, and then and we read just a little while later, Exodus chapter 32. Like you read the story and you're like, it's so stupid what they do. So God leads them through the parting of the Red Sea, the salvation moment of the Old Testament, right? And then they, uh, they get a little bit later. They're at this mountain. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's with God. They can't see him. And, and they make a golden calf and they say, listen to this, they say, this is the God that led us in freedom from Egypt. Now think about that. That God didn't even exist until a couple minutes ago. You've already been led through. It's so stupid. But then, then I think about what happens in the church in America and what we do, what we do all the time. The salvation moment, not of the Old Testament or the New Testament, of all of human history, is Jesus Christ going up on the cross, dying for our sins, raising from the dead. And then, then we come together in the church in America, and we use the name Jesus. But we've actually made a different Jesus, an Americanized version of Jesus, one that helps us accomplish the American dream. But that didn't even exist when Jesus died on the cross. The Jesus that we're worshiping, oftentimes when we're singing our songs and we're saying our words, we've made him. See, God made us in his image in the Bible, right? We've been returning the favor ever since. We keep making him in our image. You want to know if you worship the Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus that we've made in American culture with cultural Christianity? Then ask yourself this question. Is the Jesus you worship cool with your sin? And I don't just mean racism. What about your materialism? What about your sexual sin? What about your power grabs? Like, if, if your Jesus is endorsing your sin, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Father, we have a problem. But we've had a problem. And the solution? The solution is the real Jesus. In fact, this passage of Scripture screams Jesus. I know it's the Old Testament. But, but what you see here, do you know what happens? If you read the whole context, go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 3. And, I, and I'll just tell you what happens. Built, where this temple is built is on Mount Moriah. You know what happens at Mount Moriah in the Bible? That's where Abraham's taking his son Isaac. Isaac, who's the, the son of Abraham, is willingly going up the mountain to willingly lay his life down as a sacrifice. On the way up, he asks his dad, he says, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? That's God will provide. They get up there, and, and Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac, and, and God provides. But he doesn't provide a lamb, he provides a ram. Do you know what that is? It's a foreshadowing to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who we see in the New Testament. He walks up, willing, no one takes his life, he lays it down. And he willingly goes up the mountain, Mount Calvary. And he gives his life. But do you remember when Jesus came on the scene? Do you know what John the Baptist said? John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It's a fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in Genesis 22. Where's the Lamb? Still no Lamb. Here's the Lamb. It's Jesus Christ. He came to take away our sins and he's the solution to our problem. You look in this passage of Scripture when they dedicate the temple... Solomon himself sacrifices over 100,000 animals. We read in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament were a foreshadowing that pointed us to the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the only one that can transform our hearts. Racism, not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. We have a sin problem. And we've got a problem that goes even deeper in the church is that we've created a cultural Christianity and we're not even worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Father, we have a problem. He tells us more than just saying the name Jesus of what the answer is here. He tells us, what do we do about it? And you go to this passage and that's where verse 14 comes in. It's God's people. The solution, the problem is a God-sized problem. The solution, God's people responding to God in God's way for God's glory. God's people 
responding to God in God's way, the way He prescribed for it to happen, for His glory. Where do you see that? Well, look back at the passage. It says, "If my," it's like in case you didn't get it, it's my people called by my name. See, in our family, what we'll do a lot of times is when we arrive at a place, so the church, an event, we've got four kids, and they'll be in the back, and my wife oftentimes reminds them, before you get out of this car, we could be at a friend's house before they run and eat dinner. Before you get out of this car, FYI, when you get out of this car, you represent the Lord and the Lears. That's our last name. You represent the Lord and the Lears. It's reminding them what you do is not only a commentary on you, but the family you're connected with. And with that family comes rewards and responsibilities. And we see in the scriptures the, the way that we, we bear the name of Jesus is not because we show up at a place on a certain time, on a certain day of the week. It's because we've placed our name in Jesus Christ, placed our faith in, in the name of Jesus Christ. And he says in John chapter 1, for all who believed on him, who called upon his name, he's given the right to be called children of God. Ephesians chapter 1 says we're adopted into his family. That means we wear his name. And with that comes rewards and responsibilities. And the rewards are incredible. The rewards, as far as the east is from the west, he removes our sin. Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're not only adopted into his family, but he gives us access to every spiritual blessing. We have the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, is dwelling, indwelling us, living inside of us as his followers. Take about incredible rewards, incredible blessings. He's preparing a place for us. He's the way, the truth, and the life. We get to go to heaven. We get to be reconciled in relationship with him. Like the rewards are, it's, it's, you, I could go for the whole rest of our time just talking about the rewards. The rewards are incredible. The problem is many of us want the rewards. We don't want the responsibility. We like the rewards of Christianity, and so we create a Christianity that only gives us the rewards. We don't want the responsibility. Here's the responsibility. We're supposed to bear his name. We're his ambassadors. We're his representatives. We're supposed to be salt and light in this world. When the world's looking out going, is there more than this? We're supposed to be a picture of another kingdom. And we have failed. Father, we have a problem. But we've had a problem. It's just being exposed. I like what Tony Dungy said this week on Twitter, or it was actually Friday last week on Twitter. He was responding to the murder of George Floyd. And for those of you who don't know, Tony Dungy was the he was an NFL football coach, multiple teams. He's the first uh, black coach to, to win a Super Bowl. He said this, Today we are divided, a divided country. We're divided racially, politically, socioeconomically, and Satan is laughing at us. That is exactly what he wants. Dysfunction, mistrust, and hatred help his kingdom flourish. Well, what is the answer then? I believe it has to start with those who claim to be Christians. We have to come to the forefront and demonstrate the qualities of the one we claim to follow, Jesus Christ. We can't be silent. As Dr. King said many years ago, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. But we can't go forward with judgmental, bitter spirits. We need to be proactive, but to do it in the spirit of trying to help make things better. And it can't just be, listen to this, African-American churches. It has to be all churches taking a stand and saying, we're going to be on the forefront of meaningful dialogue and meaningful change. What he's saying, church, is this. He's laying it at our feet. You have a responsibility in our society. This is happening. You, you want to bring the gospel into context? This is happening in our context. You can't just ignore this. So what do we do? we got a problem. But God's shown us the answer. We go back to the scriptures and he shows us here. He says, if, if my people, 
will humble themselves. It starts with heartfelt humility. Heartfelt humility. We know in the Bible God opposes the proud. If you're proud, then you're fighting against God. In fact, I would challenge you with this thought, and some of you may need to pause the video at this moment and think about this, that if, you, if you're a proud person, it's impossible for you to love others. Why is that? Well, we'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Think about Jesus in the, in the New Testament. He tells a story about Luke chapter 18, right, of these two guys that go to the temple to worship. And, and one comes in, and he looks at the guy next to him and says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. And then he lists all the reasons why he justifies himself. I do all this stuff, and here's what I do for you, and here's who I am. And, and then there's another guy who comes and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who do you think goes away justified? The guy who justifies himself or the one who comes in humility? Read the passage yourself, and Jesus gives you the answer in Luke chapter 18. But let me ask you to be honest. As you sit in your living room, you don't have to tweet this. You don't have to post this. Can you identify with the other guy? I mean, we're good Southern Christians, right? We, we know not to say things like that when we come to church. But you ever come to church before and felt superior to somebody else? You ever read on your social media feed something you don't agree with and feel superior to somebody else? Who do you identify with? That's pride. Now, now, Scott, why are you saying you can't be proud and, and, and still love people? Well, here's why. Because what is biblical love? It's not a feeling, a sentiment you have towards people. Biblical love is when you put somebody else's interest ahead of your own. So what is humility? Humility, we get this bad idea about humility as Christians because of what we've seen in the church. Humility is not you know, self-deprecation or low self-esteem. It's not the person who's always talking about how they're, they're overweight or they're not smart or they're clumsy or whatever the things are. That person is not humble. Like, we all know the arrogant person is not humble, right? But the person with self-deprecation, they're not humble either because they're thinking about themselves all the time. Humility is, is when you stop thinking about yourself. Humility, C.S. Lewis, I think, is the first one who said it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's when you think of yourself less. Did you get that? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's like some low self-esteem. It's when you stop thinking about yourself. It's what we see Jesus do when, when he's with his disciples, and they're arguing about who's the greatest, and he takes off his rabbi robe. He's the greatest. He puts on a towel, and he gets low, and he washes their feet, and he becomes their servant. See, love in the Bible says it does not seek its own. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is not, it's patient, kind, all those things, but it's not self-seeking. So it's impossible, if you're a proud person, you're thinking about yourself, it's impossible for you to love others. It, it's, like a, it's like you've handicapped yourself spiritually. It's like if you, have a, if you can't see, you're blind, your eyes don't work, you can't see, you, there's something you're not able to do. It's like pride is like a spiritual handicap where you're not able to love because you're so proud. We've got to humble ourselves. Which means making ourselves low. Seeing ourselves accurately before God. Sinners in need. And amidst all this mess and the chaos that we've seen, there have been some highlights of good things that have happened. Back in my hometown in Flint, Michigan, the, the sheriff there in Genesee County has gone, gone viral on the news. Maybe you've seen him on the Fox, CNN, just CBS, like all these different news stations. But what he did is he, he came in, and there were peaceful protesters that were out there, and he had his riot gear on. He's a white guy. Had his riot gear on, sheriff shirt, helmet, baton. And he took the helmet off, laid the baton down, and he started to talk with the people. And he asked the question, what do you want? What do you want us to do? He said to them, we love you. We've got a guy over here hugging people. We've got, we're here to serve you. I know that you see some of these images of cops on the news. That's not us. We want to protect. We want to serve. What do we do? And the people started to chant back, walk with us. 
And he was like, let's turn this into a parade, not a protest. And they started cheering. And they, they walked. It was like an inspirational moment. But, but what I loved about it was this. It was a picture of humility. Because, not because he laid his baton down and because he took his helmet off. I mean, that was a sign. That was a symbol, symbolistic thing. But, but he asked the question, and if you watch the video, if you go and look for it. Don't do it right now. I know it's the danger of online church. But if you watch the video later, then what you'll see is at first they start saying, walk with us. And he's like processing. What are they saying? And then when it hits him, he's like, yeah, let's go. He listened to them. And what's the picture? We're supposed to have this attitude, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Your, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, not something for him to be holding on to. We became obedient, became a servant, became obedient, not just to the point of washing feet, obedient to death on a cross. And we're supposed to be a picture of Jesus to our culture. And when we fail, Father, we have a problem. We come to you. We're going back to the, the control station. We're coming to you. We want to connect with you. And it says in the scriptures that not only are we supposed to have a humble heart, we're supposed to have desperate prayer. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. But why do you say, Scott, why do you say desperate prayer? Let me tell you why I say desperate prayer here. Because verse 13, it's a desperate situation. Desperate times call for desperate prayers. Not just desperate measures. Desperate times call for desperate prayers. And you see it here in verse 13. Because he said, imagine again, you're a farmer and locusts come through your field. That's a desperate time. Like there's one way to pray and there's a desperate way to pray. Like some of you drive, maybe driving around, you're praying for a parking spot to open up. At the, at, not at the mall anymore, but at the, maybe at Walmart or at the, maybe the gym's open back. I'm so dumb. Sometimes I'm driving at the, wall, at the gym and I'm going to go inside and run on the treadmill for a couple miles, but I'm looking for a spot by the front of the building. I'm driving through there. God, give me a parking spot. That's one kind of prayer. Another kind of prayer is when you hit some ice and you lose control of your car or you're stuck on the train tracks or a semi is barreling down. That's a different kind of prayer. That's a desperate prayer. Like there's a, there's a kind of prayer where you pray for your family to be healthy. And then there's a prayer after a car accident and you're in the emergency room and you don't see your loved one and they're in the other room and you're praying like raise them from the dead kind of That's a desperate prayer. The kind of prayer we're being called to in this passage is a desperate prayer. Like Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 64, when he says, God, rend, oh God. It starts, oh, oh, rend the heavens. He's calling, come down here, shake the mountains, show us your presence. And I prayed that prayer this week. As I watch and I see the, like part of me is just like, Jesus, just come back. But then I'm reminded he doesn't come back because we still have a job here. He's not willing that any would perish. He's slow. And I felt like the Lord said, I have come. I have rendered the heavens. I sent my son. And now I'm sending you. It's John chapter 20. Just as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you, Jesus says to the disciples, to us. It's our commission. We've got a mission here. We're, we're missing it because we're so caught up in the circumstances. And cry out to you, God. And he says, you, you might be the answer to the prayer you're praying to him. And so what do we do? He tells us here, he says, it's radical repentance. Where do you get radical repentance? Well, it said here, if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Repentance means turning. It means you're headed in a direction and you stop and you turn. But what are the wicked ways and how do you know that? Well, the wicked ways aren't just you dwell on, like, God, I want to see sin in my life. I'm looking for the sin. It's when you dwell in his holiness. What you see in the Bible is every time somebody starts looking at the holiness of God, God reveals their sinfulness in their hearts. 
When they start looking at what is God like and what is his character, so you start seeking his face, you start going after God, you start seeing he's different than us, he's probably different than the God that you've created. And he starts to reveal the sin that's in our hearts and show it to us. Sometimes we don't see it. It's like, like the story of David. Like this goes through the line of the king David. David, one of the famous stories of him is the sin with Bathsheba. And if you don't know that, you read 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and you see that. But what ends up happening is that God sends a guy named Nathan, he's a prophet, to come to David. He tells him a made-up story about an injustice that takes place. And David's enraged about the injustice. And then Nathan looks at him and he says, you're the man. And then if you read what happens, David repents. But he says, he says in Psalm 51, he says, against you and you alone, have I sinned. You alone, Lord, have I sinned. What about Uriah, the guy you murdered? What do you mean, against God alone you sinned? What about Bathsheba? You, married her, you ruined her marriage. It was your sin that caused all this mess. You're saying, is this with God? And that was, the murder was wrong. It was sin. The adultery was wrong. It was sin. But first and foremost, it was a vertical problem between him and God. And God revealed it to him as he dwelled on him. Many of you have seen the video, and I'm not going to graphically re-describe it, of when George Floyd was killed. But you know, part of the outrage of that video was the men that were there, there were police officers, not that were killing him, but they were standing by and allowing it to happen. Didn't stop it from happening. And I saw an interview this week of the police chief. It was over those men. And the reporter asked him the question, said, what would you say to the Floyd family about the men who haven't been arrested? At that point, they hadn't been arrested and so what would you say to the, the Floyd family? And, and the police chief, he took his, ha- his cap off, which I thought was, he was acknowledging that he wasn't just talking to the reporter, he was talking to the Floyd family out of respect. And he said, they're complicit. And many of us, we watch, and yeah, we were, we were enraged, not only that it happened, but that no one stopped it from happening. Why did these other men in that uniform, they didn't stop it from happening? And I wonder if the message to us is, you're the man. You're upset about the things that are happening here, but church, you're complicit. Not because you've murdered someone. Not because maybe you've even done some racist behavior, but you've allowed it to happen because you haven't shown the world another kingdom. You're not fulfilling your mission. You've got a cultural Christianity that gives no hope to anyone. It's a moralization used for all kinds of abuses in our society, and we need to repent. To repent, church. And the application? The application is when we put this into action. And you read the rest of Second Chronicles, and what happens is it's, it's Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. It's an outline of the book. Because you see the other kings, it gets wicked, it gets dark, and then they humble themselves and they pray and they repent, and God brings revival. Father, we have a problem. But we've had a problem. Father, we come before you a spirit of humility right now. We're sorry that we've sinned against you, that we've made our religion about us, that we've created a God in our own image rather than submitting to you and what you say in the scriptures. God, will you change our hearts? Will you help us to seek you, to seek to know really you, even the things that we don't agree with about you, and that you would change those things about us? You'd transform our minds. You'd transform our lives. You'd reveal sin. Father, we cry out to you. We need you. This is a God-sized problem. Racism is a problem in our world, and we repent. Father, 
there are other problems that are deeper problems, that are sin problems in our world, that are problems where we've turned our face from you, we've done our own thing, and we've done what was right in our own minds. Will you turn us back to you? There's evidences of it all over the place. Will you make us aware of it? Will you bring revival? Will you, will you heal us spiritually? We're not asking you to fix our country. We're asking you to change our hearts. We're going to change the church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church family, you may have some questions about what do I do next? What, what do I, how do I respond to this? And I want you to know that as a church, we want to resource you. I've had friends, specifically some of my white friends, that said, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't want to say something in my desire to help, and I cause more problems, and we want to give you some resources. On our church website, you're going to find some resources, some different books that are out there. A book by um, Dr. John Perkins called One Blood. I've read that book. A book that was recommended to me this week, Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. That's a book that I'm, I'm planning on checking out. And there's a whole list of books that we're going to have on there. Some different businesses that you can go to to, to visit, to show your support, show your care for our, our black brothers and sisters in our community. And church family also, too, we've got different things happening. You want to check it out? on our church website. One of the big things is our family celebration coming up. Uh, we're going to be talking about our reopening plan at that family celebration. It's on June 16th. Mark your calendars and go to our website, sfchurch.com, and you can RSVP for that event there. It will be a limited number of people that we'll be allowed to have, and so make sure you RSVP right away. Church family, will you join me in reading our benediction today? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets.